And his dreams are in the hills In the limestone rim rock cedar breaks Home of the deer and the whippoorwill Seep spring damp on canyons thick with yopon oak and elm Daddy's dreams are in the hills About happenings and the history and the background of the area where the Ean School District covers and mainly in the heart of Westlake Hills in the T.J. Chambers Survey and the Wilkinson Sparks Survey and uh, the other locations up and down the B.K. Road and over on B. Creek and then some of the area over north of B. Creek back to uh, the river. It will also cover the area uh, it is now in the city of Austin that runs along Redbud Trail and on down to the Tom Miller Dam, back to Lake Austin Inn, and then in the area along the Rocky River Road. Now, this is just thinking out loud. And uh, some of this I have taken the trouble to dig up the historical uh, facts out of the files that I have here in my home. And I want to begin back, you might call it the primitive history, but when you talk in a uh, number of years, uh, I call attention to this situation, and that was that the last major Indian battle, which included more whites and more Indians in pitched battle than probably any other battle ever fought in Texas, was fought in Lockhart at Plum Creek on August 11, 1840. So when you talk about primitive times, you're not talking but about 135 years from the present date. And also, I want to call your attention to the fact that the city of Austin was not uh, chartered to be laid out and surveyed until 1839. And so there was no city of Austin 135 years ago. And so these things that we start back talking about 1800 and I believe it's 1800 and... Uh, 3024, that Mr. Thomas Jefferson Chambers came to Texas, and he was born in Virginia in 1802. I'm going to give you a little of his background because it is his survey that most of Westlake Hill is laid out on and uh, that I know about and that my, I, I once owned. But Mr. Chambers came to Texas in 1834 as a uh, on the business of trying to reorganize the, the court system for the uh, Texas and the Mexican government, uh, uh, Monclovia, I believe is where it was, and they offered to give him 137,000 acres of land in what is now Hayes and Travis County and a number of other counties around there. Well, in the middle of the time that he was to get this land, of course, in 1836, we had our revolution, and uh, Mr. Chambers was Right in the middle of that, he was a major general in the army, and he took his land and uh, put it up as collateral to get uh, money to help fight the revolution. And for that, he was given a, what they call a bounty certificate. Now, they passed a law right after the, the Republic of, of Texas was formed in 1836-37, whereby all the soldiers who participated in uh, the main battles were to be given a certain amount of land. I believe a married man was to get 1,280 acres and, and 640 acres to a single man, and it varied on uh, down the line. And uh, Mr. Chambers, it so happened 
that although he owned uh, around 137,000 acres of land scattered around over central Texas and as far down as Chambers County, Texas, that he took his bounty certificate for his service out in the area now known as West Lake Hills, which is the T.J. Chambers Survey, number 504. Now, I don't presume to say that when he got that, and I believe the I have in front of me a Xerox copy of the patent and the survey and the field notes. It's not the patent itself. was, was it, it is dated, you could say, 20 years after the Battle of Plum Creek. And uh, all of this area, north of uh, or north and west of Zucker Park or Barton Springs was in, I guess, as late as 1850, was considered Comanche country. They had a right to come into it, and they came in and traded under the Treaty Oak on West 5th Street. The city of Austin did not presume to reach out beyond uh, West Avenue in this direction, and we were really in the wilds. And so uh, when he took his patent out in 1860, this was this country was hill country. It was possible, of course, to ford the river if you wanted to on, on several places because there were no dam across Lake Austin, uh, the Colorado River, where the present Tom Miller Dam is, until 1893. At that time, the old uh, uh, former, the mayor of, of Austin, whose name was MacDonald, they built a dam, and they built it out of old present Tom Miller Dam that was washed out in 1900. But that dam was built in 1893. So up until that time, and Lake MacDonald was formed, you could cross the Colorado River all along where Taylor Slough is now, and you could go across and ford the river up about where Bull Creek is now. And I know people who, who forded the river even as late as 1917 and 18 up around Bull Creek because we'd had some other floods and the, uh, and the, the dam was in, 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 in bad repair. But of course, in 1900, the flood of 1900, the entire dam was taken out, and Lake MacDonald was... Uh, over until somewhere along about 1914 or 15, somewhere along in there, they built another dam. And um, it didn't do too well. Nobody paid much attention to it and, until Tom Miller Dam was built by the LCRA. But to, you've got to visualize the area where West Lake Hill is as being completely primitive and completely wild, and, and no one lived up here. Now, the I came in 1936, and I can tell you after a while about uh, what I found when I got here. And it wasn't changed much, in the, I'd say, in, in the 100 years prior to that time. But Mr. Chambers took this out, 1,280 acres, and that is the land on which uh, uh, Redbud Trail runs through more or less the middle of it. And uh, it uh, runs all the way from about where Westlake Drive is, uh, all the way back to the Nike site on the Roy Ranch. And it, uh, it was long ways east and west. and. Uh, that uh, Yopon Valley Road runs through it, Laurel Valley Road runs through it, and of course the Caravan Circle and all the roads in there, Dr. Holtz's home is right about in the middle of the 1,280 acres. And when I bought it, I bought it in two different tracks. The east 500 acres belonged to the uh, Brackenridge heirs, George W. Brackenridge's heirs out of San Antonio, who was made as Matthews, and the west end of it, 600 uh, and some odd acres, belonged to the Leewright heirs of Mr. J.M. Leewright, and part of it was in the Roy girls' hands over where their home is. I believe that's right close to the, the end of the chamber survey. Anyway, I wanted to get your acquainted with Mr. Chambers. Now, he also owned the land. 
He got it granted from the, Me the Mexican government before the Revolutionary War, where the state capital, uh, where the Texas state capital is now located. And they had a big lawsuit over that, and the state of Texas finally settled it by paying Mr. Chambers' heirs $20,000 for his claims on that. Now, I mentioned the fact that he had all this land on the prairies and, and around Austin in conjunction with what I'm going to tell you a little later about his interest in the William Brown Survey, which lies over along uh, El Toro Canyon Road and, Yopa, and uh, the Trail of Madrones over north of Bee Creek. Now, Mr. Chambers was rather a well-to-do man, and he lived until 1965, 1865. He was assassinated by someone uh, while he was on his porch in Chambers County, Texas. And um, he, they had his, uh, I don't know whether it was Chambers County at that time because his administration took place in Galveston County. And uh, my abstracts, of course, show all the administrative proceedings. And it so happened he married a lady named Abby Chubb in 1850, and she was his administrator after his death. And, and uh, she had, by that time, married a fellow named Cyrus Thompson. But in his dealings, Mr. Chambers had bought script. He had bought headright certificates. He had bought these bounty certificates from the soldiers who were entitled to them and didn't want to uh, go to the trouble of surveying the land out. And they just uh, slough off to, to this banker, Mr. Uh, and a finance man. They would slough off their right to this land to him for a certain amount of money. And he would buy them and take a, buy those and take an assignment and then come survey them. Well, he did that with reference to the William Brown survey over north of Bee Creek of which I had the biggest part of it one time, or the north half of it. Now, the reason he he got that land was because he was selling uh, home sites over around Austin and in the prairies, and I noticed that he subdivided, or he had a Mr. Dubel, who was had power of attorney from him, subdivided, and it was probably after Mr. Chambers' death, but he'd subdivided into 10-acre blocks, and uh, those blocks were sold out. Uh, it, uh, I'll give you the dates in a little while, but... The point I'm making here now is that when he, Mr. Chambers, or his heirs would sell some land in Austin, they would sell some timberland to go along with it, 10 acres of timberland over here on this side of the river in the Brown Survey so that people could get wood to take care of their, their fires in the wintertime. They burnt, everybody used wood in those days for their fireplace and also to cook with. And so the people would buy this, these 10 acre blocks along with the land they had in town and when they cut the, the cedar off or the wood off, they had abandoned them. And I'll tell you about that story after a while. But one of the people who bought that was A.J. Hamilton, who was governor of Texas right after the Civil War. He had a 10-acre block in the Brown Survey. Perhaps he never came over to it. Probably sent his own uh, servants over to haul the wood off. But at that time, and up until 1893, you could come across the river in wagons in many points and come into this area. And people did that. And there, there was a, a, a cedar wall over here at one time when they started to bring in the, the uh, railroads into Texas, into central Texas. They needed ties for the railroads. And they didn't have creosote ties in those days. They had cedar ties. They cut cedar posts down that uh, would make good railroad ties, and they'd cart them across the river and sell them to these railroad companies to put the railroads in. And there was a fellow named P.C. Taylor who uh, timbered all the land over north of Bee Creek and in that, there's two or three thousand acres in that. He cut timber off of the land whether he owned it or not. And he towed it across the river at Taylor Slough. On the east side, it still bears his name. Now we'll take up the more or less history and jump through it pretty fast till we get down to modern times on the, the east 500 acres of the Chambers Survey, which lies from 
Dr. Holt, she's hailed eastly toward uh, the east end, that was just about where Westlake Drive is. And uh, that was conveyed to a fellow named Leonard Hartson in 1872 by the widow of Mr. Chambers. And then Mr. Hartson uh, made one conveyance that was rather of quite a little bit of interest. He sold a 10-acre block of that land to a fellow named, I see it was a Mexican named M. Navarro, and that is in 1872. Now that little 10 acres of land is up where uh, Old Stone Age is located now, where all those beautiful homes are. And when I came out here in 1936 and a little before that, I found the remains of the old Navarro settlement. That was the only person uh, or the people that lived there, the only ones that I ever that showed any signs of having any life in this area. At that time, uh, on the whole chamber survey. Now that was on December the 30th, 1872, that M. Navarro got the deed. And the subdivision was, uh, was or his uh, land was described as like this. And I had to bring a lawsuit. It cost me more to bring this lawsuit than it did for the whole 500 acres, almost. And here's where it was described, said, being a subdivision of a tract on the southwest side of the Colorado River known as the Chambers Tracks on Bee Creek. Beginning at a stake in Stone Mount on the north side of Little Bee Creek, on the top of the hill, supposed to be about 300 yards from the creek, from which a cedar stub of a tree 10 feet high, 10 inch in di diameter, bears a certain course and distance. And then it goes on and, and says this this uh, little 10 acre block is 237 16 very square, and uh, describes it. Now, no one in the world could have found that at all, no surveyors could, and so. I had to bring a suit against everybody that had any title to that at all. Now, in 1878, Navarra sold this piece to Pedro Estado. And then in 1890, Pedro Estado conveyed it to Stark, Washington, and Lee Costler. Now, I go this far with that little 10 acres because I'll tell you some more about it right now, and then I'll go on and pick up the people who are Stark, Washington, and Lee Costler and give you some more of their history in Westlake Hills. Now, the little 10 acre block up there where old Stonehenge now is, had a rock fence around it. And uh, you had to fence cattle and stock and stuff like that out of your place. There evidently was a little house. I found an old dug well there in 1936. And I also found an old plum granite tree and also a fig tree. And they were just on the south side of, of where the big oak tree is there across from, from um, uh, Ray Coggins' home. Now, when I came here, there was this big rock wall. and we uh, needed some some rock to uh, put where Lake Austin Inn is now. Lake Austin Inn didn't have any flat ground down on the lakeside. So we hauled, I guess, 30 or 40 loads of these rocks that was on this fence down there and made Lake Austin Inn parking area where the lake is. And if anybody ever digs under it, they'll find all those rocks down there. Now, they were not good building stone, or we would not have moved them. They were sort of a granite, uh, well, not a granite, but sort of a flint kind of a stone. And so... I called all of these additions up here that I had in the chamber survey after that old rock wall when I call them Stonehenge. You'll see all these blocks of Stonehenge, and I got conceived the idea of calling them after the Stonehenge. Now, I had to bring a, a suit later on. Uh, this land, by means conventions, finally fell into the hands of a fellow named Stelfox. Oh, it must have been somewhere after uh, uh, 19, around 1921 or somewhere along in there. 
Anyway, Mr. Stelfox conceived the idea of dividing it into 50 foot uh, lots. And so he had him a little plat with these 50 foot lots on it, and he'd trade them for tars, he'd trade them for groceries, and so, uh, trade them for anything he'd get anybody to take them for, because he didn't know where the land was, and he hadn't been on it for, no one had been on it in that chain of title for 40 or 50 years. But I had to bring a suit to clear it against all these people, and many of them were my friends in Austin, and I went to them and asked them if they knew where their land was, and they said they had no idea where it was. They never had been on it, never had seen it. Mr. Stelfox had, had just given it to them for an old debt, so they couldn't be heard on it. One of them was the RFC. They held some paper on it. In the meantime, the owners of the 500 acres in the Chambers Estate, uh, it had gone by different conveyances to uh, gotten into Mr. J John T. Brackenridge. He was a banker in Austin, and he was a, a younger brother of George W. Brackenridge of San Antonio, who gave Brackenridge part to the city of San Antonio, and also uh, he was uh, one of the richest men that ever was on the city of the uh, Board of Regents at the University of Texas, and he was the one that gave the Brackenridge track out where the golf course is now, on, uh, close to the Lake Austin. And um, they uh, got that through a, a, a taking a note or something, and, and Mr. John T. Brackenridge traded off to, to George W., and I remember as a little boy, uh, Mr. Brackenridge's wife used to come out and visit my mother. She'd come out in a horse in Surrey about, eight, I guess, 1912 or 1910. And I remember Mrs. Brackenridge, and she lived, that's John T. Brackenridge's wife, she lived right where the Travis County Courthouse is now on, on uh, 11th Street there, close to where Mike Butler's uh, father's home was. And then... Um, Somehow or another, George W. Brackenridge got a hold of it, his, and he had no children, as history records, of course, and he left it to his one of his nieces, Mrs. L.D. Matthews, or gave her a deed. And Mrs. Matthews then left it to her daughter, Mrs. McIntyre, Ice McIntyre of San Marcos, and, and uh, I bought it from them. And uh, I'll, I'll tell that story a little more in detail about how I got a hold of it. I might as well tell it right here. It's very interesting that in 1935 I discovered about this open land up here and found out who owned it and I abstracted it. I have the, my work here in my in my hands right now about the information I had. And so I knew Mrs. McIntyre had it and I had I knew of her children when I was going to school in St. Marcus in 1921 to 25. So I contacted her and by St. Marcus and got her in my car and we went down to San Antonio to the San Antonio Loan and Trust Company who were acting as executor of her mother's will. And uh, we got in there and uh, Mr. Earth, I think, was the officer in the bank and Mrs. McIntyre told him that she had a, a man that was willing to pay her $1,000 for the 500 acres of land. And he said, no, he said, uh, uh, that land's worth $2,000. And she said, no, said, last year we had a sucker uh, that was going to pay us $1,000 an acre and we didn't take it and we lost him. And I want to sell my land now. Had and that thousand dollars, if Mr. Sheldon had paid it to me today, and I could take it out of town more down and make ten thousand out of it for dark. And Mr. Hurst says, said, yeah, now, Mrs. McIntyre, that's the reason that we're exactly to your mother's will instead of you. Well, anyway, I made a deal, and I bought that 500 acres in, in September, I believe, in 1936. I think that story would be very interesting, and, and it was to me at least. Uh, how I paid the other $500, on, I mean the other $1,500 on that was a hard go. Now in the meantime, before I got up to buying it, the uh, McCulloughs, who lived down right on the, on, it's where uh, 
Laurel Valley Road is now, just east of where the tank is, over in the edge of the Spark Survey. Mr. M.B. McCullough had his home out there, and his uh, daughter and son lived there with him. His daughter was Willie Bradshaw later on. Mr. Bradshaw was one of the first city council members of Westlake Hills and lived up on Mount Stewart over there. Very dear friend of mine, and he and worked with me on all these things. And when he found out I was interested in the, the Chambers land, he got interested in his wife's inheritance in the in the Bradshaw land, and, and they came out and, and helped a whole lot on the thing. But anyway, the McCullough Land and Cattle Company was organized by Mrs. Willie McCullough Bradshaw's father. And they leased uh, this uh, chamber survey from the Brackenridges, I think, or whoever owned it at that time, and I'm sure it was the Brackenridge chain. And they also leased what is known as the James Track over east of Little Bee Creek now and runs on where the filtration plant is and belongs to the city of Austin where Redbud Trail runs through it. And then they had other land leased and of course it just wasn't cattle country and wasn't any way to make a go of it and they finally let it all go. But when I got them, uh, I had to bring another lawsuit on the James Tract after I bought that for the city of Austin. I'll tell about that later. But after we, uh, Mr. Bradshaw's old home was down there, and you can, I remember when I first came out here, I found the old well. No one was living there in 35 or 36. They had moved to Austin, and the, the McCullough boy was working in the post office, and Mrs. Willie McCullough was working for the Carl Wentland and Sons, and she had married Mr. L.L. L. Bradshaw. And so the old home place, though, was there. You could find that they had a well, an old dug well right in the edge of Little Bee Creek, and didn't have to go about 20 feet, and they had water and an old spring there. And I have found some springs on my side of the chamber survey. They were just uh, about uh, 50 yards on the, on the east side of the chamber survey line, and there were some old fences in there, and an old fig tree, and maybe a plum granite they had it in those days. But that was where the McCullers lived. Now, I did have some signs, some evidence of someone having lived at one time way back up where Flint Ridge Road runs in to Redbud Trail, there was an old, when I first came up there, there was an old uh, well. There was a piece of pipe down in the ground where somebody had drilled a well at that point and I presume lived there at one time. And I don't know of any other habitations anywhere on the chamber survey than those. And then the nearest next one would be off down and it might have been in part of the chamber survey or it was on Bee Creek where the Scanlon Mr. Scanlon now owned, and the little tank I have down there, and there's some springs. And that was a, a rather busy site down there because it was a permanent spring, and some people uh, lived in there about 1900 to 1905. It was a fellow named uh, uh, Harlan, H-A-R-L-A-N. It shows it him in the abstract, and when I was down surveying the land off with Mr. Jackson in that area, trying to find the difference between the bottom and the, which I, the bottom survey land that I bought from the Gracies, and what belonged to the Larsons. We were in there with Dozier fooling around and, and trying to clean it up. Well, we run into an old gravestone, and uh, it had on there Murty Harlan. And apparently, uh, 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 when he died, they didn't have a date on it, but I noticed in the abstract that he was there about 1905. And perhaps his only companion was a Mexican and might have been kin of these that were staying up at the old hillside edition up there on where Stonehenge is now. But the Mexican couldn't talk English, and he wrote, Harlan's dead on his gravestone. And Mr. Jackson and I put it up against a tree there, hoping someday we'd have some roads in there. That is long before there's any roads in that area at all. The Dozier could get in, and that's all. And so I never did find it. Somebody else found it, or it got covered up or wasted. But anyway, it disappeared. Dad moved to the hills, and I could barely walk or talk. 
Here to stand the cedar, built a home native rock. Now my daddy is a lawyer, but the daddy I recall wore boondock boots and a khaki shirt and a sweat-stained farm straw. And his dreams are in the hills, in the limestone rim rock cedar breaks. Home of the deer and the whippoorwill, seep spring damp on the canyons, thick with the open elm. Daddy's dreams are in the hills. Well, best best friend that I recall was a slop-eared red old hound dog. Me and him was sidekicks. Daddy went to practice law. Mom stayed home, read me. My brothers went to high school. Daddy'd come home and do the chores and plop down on the porch to cool. Your dad wake me up when dawn's just gray streaks. Clanking in the kitchen, and I'd smell the bacon grease. Well, I'd get his axe and pitchfork, kerosene, white new gloves. Go inside for breakfast, once I fill the water jug. Well, dewdrops glistened, and Dad worked with his cedar chopper friends. And he shaped his dreams to the lack of an axe and the crackling of a fire in the wind. And his dreams were in the hills, in the limestone rim rock cedar breaks. Home of the deer and the whippoorwill, seep spring up on canyons thick with yopa and oak and hill. And his dreams are in the hills. Well, today my daddy's name. We've been friends for 50 years. Sometimes he talks of leaving, and it's so hard to hide my tears. He says, don't worry if I go. I'll see you someday soon. We'll sit out on flagstone porch and watch moonflowers bloom. And in the morning, before the sun comes up, I'll fry you up some bacon. Then we'll go out to the cedar breaks that line the hills of heaven. And his dreams are in the hills, in the limestone rim rock cedar breaks, home of the deer and the whippoorwill, all seep spring down on canyons thick with yopon oak and hill. Daddy's dreams are in the hills. Daddy's dreams. Are in the hills.